All right. Well, I'm going to start a little bit, and we'll incorporate some more folks. Um, we're going to take a look over these next four weeks at spiritual practices as a lens into the question, what does it mean, hey Kelly, uh, to practice faith? What does it mean to be Christian? Uh, Richard Rohr, who a bunch of us in the congregation are Richard Rohr junkies. He's a Franciscan friar, a Roman Catholic priest uh, that is often at odds with the Roman Catholic hierarchy. Uh, But Richard Rohr has a whole idea that it's probably better these days to start thinking about faith, the Christian faith in particular, less as a propositional set of beliefs, as something you intellectually believe in your head, and more as a set of practices that we engage in as a community, as individuals, that for a lot of folks, some of the worst abuses that have come around the Christian faith are around that idea of Christianity as a propositional set of beliefs. Today what I want to do is look at practices, and I, I, of course I'm starting in a way that doesn't make a ton of sense, right? Um, we, I thought we'd break up practices, because we have four sessions, based on time. And so this week we're going to do the hardest one to conceive of in terms of time, and that is the practices across the whole of life. What do I mean by that? Anybody have a venture, a guess? That, like, what, is, what would be a practice that is a, a life practice in Christianity? Maybe you do it once in your life. Don't all jump in at once. It's a very participative class. Hey, Dave. <laughs> Dying. Dying is an important Christian practice. We'll talk about the practice of dying. What's another one? Once, so baptism. Baptism. Yeah, in this tradition at least, baptism is a one-time thing. Others? Those are two good ones. We're going to talk about a few different ones. But part of what I want to talk about tonight, um, when we talk about practicing across life... um, and I can't spell, apparently, practicing across life, is the idea of stages. Now, I'm cognizant of the fact that we may have some folks in this room that know a great deal more about stage theory than I do. Anybody know what I mean when I say stage theory? Gloria, what's stage theory? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So qualitative differences from one time of life to the next. And there's lots of different ways of mapping it. Um, There's one uh, psychoanalyst or um, psychosocial development person. Originally, we used to talk about Eric Erickson, and I'm pretty sure now we credit the system to both him and his spouse. Her name is Joan, but the two Ericksons. But the stages of life for psychosocial development. Um, There's a famous theologian from Boston University named James Fowler who talked about the stages of faith development. I'm not going to get too deep into particular stage theories and into like what stage are we at. Um, One of the things I find really interesting is most of them 
it, it's a progression, right? It's like this life progression on stages. And most of them, or at least Fowler, which is the system I know the best, his is a six-stage system, and stage six is like enlightenment, right? And, and Fowler says almost nobody ever reaches it. And I'm sure Fowler thought that he had reached it, right? Um, there's a little bit of danger when you get into stage theory. But this idea that we go in stages across life, however you number them and whether you think of the stages as something that you consistently progress through and maybe some people regress a little bit, or you think about the stages as particular ways of conceiving faith at different points in our journey, it can be helpful to think about sort of ways of doing and being and thinking about faith that at times we need to transcend. Is anybody familiar with the work of Brian McLaren? That name ring a bell for anybody? Yeah. Brian, um, Brian McLaren is another teacher at Richard Rohr's Institute, the Center for Action and Contemplation. He didn't start out there. He was a, he's, he was a failed professor. He, he tried to move toward a PhD in English, and he ended up starting a church and being a pastor for 20-something years. And then he says he failed at being a pastor because he started writing books and started touring with the books and became a really important um, voice in the sort of progressive evangelical circles. Brian has a new book uh, called Do I Stay Christian? Part of what I like about Brian is that he's got this capacity to just put something in a very simple way that a lot of people are feeling. But do I stay Christian? And he divides the book into three sections. One, the first part is yes. And then part two is, or no, it's, I'm reversing it. Part one is no. And then part two is Yes. And then part three is, wait, how do I make the determination or what do I actually do with this? And the beginning of part three, Brian talks about stages. And he wonders whether for a lot of people that feel like they need to leave their church or their denomination or their faith, whether what they're really feeling is the pressure of leaving a stage. Now, part of what I have a hard time with with the stage theory, especially when it comes to religion, um, the way that Fowler describes it, he, he does it on a human development model, right? And so, to a degree, it makes sense. Um, you know, like, you talk about faith differently with my four-year-old, who we're hoping stays in the godly play classroom tonight. We'll see how his behavior does, right? But you talk about faith differently with him than you do with a room full of adults. He would be very bored listening to his dad talk like this, Right? So that's one way of thinking about stages of faith. But there are interpretive frameworks on stages of faith that would see like a very literalist understanding of faith or uh, a communication about faith principles that is very, uh, very firm, um, very assuring, that that is sometimes seen as a stage of faith that people grow out of. You grow past the need for really fixed certainties. That often gets involved in stage theory. Um, And you you can see these stage theories that look at like uh, the capacity to hold mystery. 
and, and you can tell that it's like Episcopalians who are all into sacraments that are looking down on the evangelicals. Um, Presbyterians, Episcopalians, Lutherans, these sacramental traditions will be like, oh, this is not quite us, right? And so I get worried about that. I get worried about any kind of hierarchical model of stages of faith where there's some kind of like, we are better than you built into that, which can be hard not to build into a stages of faith. And at the same time, I think it can be useful. How many of you in this room came from another Christian tradition before you came to Holy Communion? Yeah, just about everyone in the room, right? And, and so it, is, it can be tempting to look back at the stages that came before, and, and particularly if there was some precipitating event or some decision you made about, I just can't swallow this thing about the religious tradition that I'm leaving, that can make it tempting to really look down on a different way of doing faith. Part of what I think some of the best kind of, you know, every theory, right? And that's what stage theory is, is a theory. Every theory has its like original group that is really excited about it. And then the next generation comes and critiques it. And then another generation comes and says, oh, but they had something there, right? That's kind of the way academics work. We're about at that stage, that third stage, about, oh, they had something there. And some of the best work I've seen is work like Brian's that is saying, okay, so we got to be careful about judging whole other systems of faith or whole other ways of doing faith. We have to be careful about saying, like, everybody who is a Southern Baptist is stage three, and aren't we all so much better up here at stage five in the Episcopal Church? We've got to be careful with that. But there's also something to the transition moments. Um, there's a phrase, there's a word that's big in seminaries, probably big in um, social development stuff too, liminality. What does liminality mean? Anybody? Michael. Michael. Being on a threshold, standing in between something. Part of what we know from social development and part of what we know from spiritual development is liminal moments are really uncomfortable and they tend to be the key moments in our own journey of faith. They tend to be the moments in which something is breaking open for us. Some container we had built no longer holds our sense of who God is, what the Spirit is. Some community that we participated in no longer is able to satisfy a need that we have in some way. And, and so we end up in this edgy, uncomfortable place, but it's also the place where we go through a huge amount of growth. It's uncomfortable to be there. Um, I'm in the midst of my doctoral program at, at a seminary, and I was, I, we have to do these, this semester-long reading course. And I, we're reading right now books that have to do with writing your thesis or your dissertation, because that's what I'll be doing next year. And I encountered this book um, by this author who writes about dissertations. It's, I, would not have picked this for myself just by the title, but it's called Writing Your Dissertation in 15 Minutes a Day. (laughs) 
and I wouldn't have thought that I would encounter something really profound in this book, right? I thought it would be just like kind of practical, self-helpy, whatever. I got to read it and write a little review of it for my online post. But one of the things the author said is, there are people that have a hard time writing their dissertations because their dissertation represents a liminal moment. They are moving from the identity of student into the identity of graduate. And if they really enjoyed being a student, that can be a really hard leap, that there's a psychological barrier that can develop there. And I just was like, oh, yup, feeling that, right? That, that participating in that kind of project can, can mess with you a little bit. So I, I introduce all of that to say, I think it's helpful for us to think about the spiritual journey from like a 30,000 foot view over the course of a whole life. We'll look at practices that help us be present in this very moment, right? We'll look at some daily practices that ask us to quiet the voices around us and be present in this very moment. But there are practices of faith that help us to mark big turning points. The rites of Christian initiation, as they're called in a lot of circles, are important turning point moments. So what are the rites of Christian initiation? When I say that, do we have any good Catholics that know, can list those ones out? Rites of Christian initiation, they're sacraments. Baptism. Baptism is the primary one. Kelly? Confirmation. There's another one. First communion. Or just communion writ large. We got it. So baptism. Confirmation. First communion. Um, the uh, Catholic theologians would actually tell you first communion is a particular thing, but it, communion writ large is the only repeatable sacrament of initiation. The other ones you do once. Um, unless you get confirmed in Episcopalian and you're going into the Roman Catholic Church and then you got to be confirmed again. But that's another thing. Um, baptism, confirmation, communion. How many of you have already been baptized? You willing to share a show of hands? How many of you remember your baptism? Yeah, a few people. How many of you have been confirmed? How many of you remember your confirmation? How many of you remember your confirmation preparation? Oh, a few people. Um, what ages do we associate with these sacraments? Why did I ask that question about remember? What, do we, what ages do we show, associate with baptism? Infants, young child. Yeah, less than one. Hopefully. They get way squirmier after one. I, I like to say I don't really like baptizing kids about, between about the age of three and about the age of ten. Because if they're three, they're right at that point where they can really say no for themselves and you have to pay attention to them. <laughs> uh, I had a friend named uh, Diane, a Methodist pastor, who, um, because of the pandemic, was baptizing a, a little girl who was a little bit older than you would have baptized uh, somebody, probably. And she said that at one point she really 
paused and thought about, did, should she continue? Because the little girl um, was there with her parents and her godparents, but her grandma was in the front row. And the little girl reaches out in the middle of the, the as they're doing the back and forth between the minister and the um, congregation. And she's reaching like little toddlers do for her grandma. And she just goes, save me, save me. <laughs> and Diane said she waited a second. And she goes, nah, that's the whole point of this. Let's keep going. <laughs> right? But so we've, we've got this tension in Christianity around baptism, around when it is supposed to happen. When is it supposed to happen in the Episcopal Church? Anybody know? Oh, that's right. That's the answer. Nobody knows. Um, So uh, the Episcopal Church is one of the churches that keeps the tradition of infant baptism. Uh, We keep it alive in the Reformation. It's one of the things that marks us off as still more Catholic than a lot of the Reformed traditions because we keep infant baptism. And so um, I've seen, you know, like there was a bowl that the Bishop of California, when he rode around on his horseback, carried around this beautiful little tiny silver bowl. And baptism was this private thing that you did in people's parlors and homes. And it was this, you know, thing that was sort of like welcoming the new baby. It was almost like baby shower plus baptism, right? That's the way baptism was practiced for a long time. In the 1970s, there's this huge, 60s and 70s, but 70s is when the Episcopal Church finishes it, there's this huge movement. Um, In the Catholic Church, it's marked by the Second Vatican Council, but it's true across most of us that have sort of Catholic-style worship. Um, And the Catholics and the Episcopalians do something very similar. I think we actually copied the Catholics on this one. But we created a norm for the baptism of adults. The Catholics call it um, RCIA, Rites of Christian Initiation for Adults. Anybody participated in an RCIA program? Yeah, a few. Um, it, It was a big deal. It still is a big deal. But the prayer book... Um, the Episcopal prayer book, and we'll talk more about the prayer book tradition, but um, a prayer book, the the Episcopal Church doesn't have, like, doctrine from on high. There are things that we pass at our general convention, but it's nothing like the Roman Catholic Church where there's, like, teachings that come down. Um, the, The resolutions of general convention don't hold that kind of authority. What does for us is the Book of Common Prayer. I should have one with me. I'll get one while you all are discussing at your tables. Um, But the Book of Common Prayer, my mom pointed this out to me. I don't know if she got it from one of her seminary professors or it was just my mom. But if you open up the Book of Common Prayer, it starts with daily prayer, morning and evening prayer. We'll we'll get there. Um, But then, after morning and evening prayer, it takes you through the life cycle. It starts with baptism. Then you get the Eucharistic prayers. Then you get confirmation. Then you get sick. No, then you get married. Then you get ministry with the sick and the dying. Then you die, you get the rites of burials. Then you get ordination. <laughs> she thought that part was funny. But it, it's interesting, that's the, that's the organization. The Book of Common Prayer takes you across all of life. And in the Book of Common Prayer, um, the service for baptism, the newest iteration of the Book of Common Prayer comes from 1979. And so you can tell there's, there's some new hip stuff in there from 1979. Uh, There's a Eucharistic prayer that we've only used a few times here, but we call it the Star Wars prayer because it includes the vast expanse of interstellar space, right? It's got lines like that in it. Um, There are things in the Book of Common Prayer that feel semi-contemporary. 
And one of those things is that the service of baptism is in the Easter vigil. It's not its own broke out little service. It's, it's built into the Easter vigil. And it's really written for adults. It's sort of like, here's the footnotes that allow you to still do this for infants. But the framers of our current Book of Common Prayer really wanted us to think about that this service was something that adults were going to participate in in our new time period where so many folks were going to grow up not Christian. I'll still say the vast majority of the people I baptized, guess what age they were? Under three. But we've had more and more adult baptisms. So it's interesting, this, this baptism, it, it functions pretty differently if you're doing it at zero to three versus if you're doing it as an adult, don't you think? Um, we're going to talk a little bit about that as groups. Confirmation. What age do you associate with confirmation? 14? Wow. Yeah, really firm answer. The Catholics must have it like nailed down in St. Louis. This is the age at which. Um, in the Episcopal Church, uh, a lot of parents would say, ah, we hope to do it before they get to college. Um, we haven't been as good about confirmation I've had far more adults confirmed or received than we've had teenagers in my eight years at Holy Communion. Um, Part of that is we have this gap in youth group and a lot of the youth that were here when I first got here had already been confirmed and then we've had a couple that have snuck in but have not had a really consistent, Julie's working on a confirmation prep class right now. But it is interesting that we, we've started to think of confirmation or we've started to see confirmation and it's accompanying, there's the right of reception in the Episcopal Church if somebody's been from another tradition or the right of reaffirmation of faith, which is something any Christian can do at any time if they want to. Um, they all get kind of lumped together and the bishop does the exact same thing. The prayer varies just a tiny bit depending on which one you're doing. But this is one that we do either at the cusp of adulthood or in adulthood. What about communion? Where does that sit? Communion usually happened after confirmation. It used to happen after confirmation in the Episcopal tradition. Um, That changed in the 79 prayer book. Um, And that was true for the Catholics as well. I don't know how it actually functioned for the Catholics in kind of white European tradition. But communion, first communion particularly, was something that you knew came between baptism and confirmation as a Catholic. And that's really where we've gotten as an Episcopalian, is is communion is kind of any age when the kid is ready for it. Um, And we don't tend to make a big deal in the Episcopal tradition about First Communion, with one exception. Anybody have any idea where the one exception would be? Latino ministries. Um, When I had a Spanish-speaking congregation, we actually had to create something. Um, The National Church has created a liturgy. My friend Anthony Guillen, who's uh, the head of Hispanic ministries, created this liturgy. But they call it the Gran Comunión. Instead of the First Communion, they say the Great Communion. And because it's such a built-in cultural expectation in Latin American cultures, the idea of First Communion, they built something that involved a little bit of instruction and was like this time when it was really an emphasis that the kids were going to receive communion. And they put on the little dresses and they did all of the, all the cultural things around it. So what other stages of faith, besides these sacramental ones, might you name? If I said there are stages of faith, what stages of faith might you name? 
marriage and marriage prep, hopefully. What else? I'd make a case to you that there's an important one, um, and it's a bit of an emerging one. Young adulthood. And there's a lot of psychological studies around this. I used to be the young adult person for the presiding bishop, but um, there's a lot of psychological studies around young adulthood as this kind of emerging understanding of development and who we are. But it's, it's a thickening phase of life uh, in our culture. The sort of, and, and it's hard to pin down when it starts. Does it start at 18? Does it start at 21? Does it start at college graduation or first job? That's always, it's, it's kind of got this, you know, when does the start thing? And it, it's kind of got the same at the end of it. Does it end at marriage? Does it end at kids? Does it, if you're single, does it end when you're 45 and you just don't want to hang out with the young adult ministry people anymore? Like, how does that work? But there is this idea that in your young adulthood, there's a developmental sweet spot. And the psychologist would say, especially in your 20s, there's a developmental sweet spot that happens. And we're starting to develop some practices around young adulthood. What are some practices that you can think of around young adulthood that would be kind of a maybe once in life or hopefully not that many times in life kind of practice? Any ideas? Internships? Um, gap years, sometimes they're called. Service years. The Mormons have this down pat, right? Every, what do Mormon kids do when they... They do two years as missionaries. Man, you go work for the church for two years and go tell people about your faith for two years, you're going to be committed to your church tradition for the rest of your life, right? You're going to raise your kids in that church. So there's... There is this emerging, and in the Episcopal Church, we've seen this growing. We now have an international program that sends, I did it out in Honduras, but sends people all over the world to go serve with the Anglican Communion. We have domestic programs. We've had a house here in North City, St. Louis, where young adults have come and given a year of their life and formation. Um, But young adulthood. I think there's another developmental sweet spot that we're starting, just barely starting, to crack in our culture. Anybody know what, it is, what I'm thinking about? Let me guess. Retirement. Early retirement. I can't tell you about how many people are in this beautiful, sweet spot discerning what am I going to do with the rest of my life? Right? I got the pension years I needed to get in and I still got, you know, 20 years, hopefully of good health. And it's... <laughs> tell you a story. So that's program where I went out to uh, be a young adult um, volunteer in Honduras. We did our training. We were technically considered missionaries of the Episcopal Church. And we did our training with other people that were going out as missionaries of the Episcopal Church. And I'll never forget Sarah. And Sarah had been a school teacher and she decided in her retirement that she was going to continue as a school teacher. Uh, and she was going to go to China with the Episcopal Church. And the first night we were sitting around at missionary training, we were all telling stories about how we got there, right? Um, kind of stories that I'm going to have you tell to each other here in just a minute. And, you know, it, it was about 20 people in the room, and so we're listening to story after story, and you kind of, your eyes start glazing. And Sarah was more than halfway through the group, and then it got to Sarah. And Sarah had the best starting line I've ever heard in a story like this. She said, well, I went and got a colonoscopy. <laughs> 
And everybody just kind of went, wait, what? And she said, I got done with my colonoscopy and I'm coming out of the anesthesia and the doc comes and sees me and says, well, you got, you, you got a great looking colon. Come back and see me in 10 years. She said, and I thought, I've got 10 years with a clean colon. I better do something with them. And Sarah did. She had an incredible impact um, with the kids in China. And I mean, she didn't change the world or anything, but man, she started out her retirement with this incredible opportunity to go see the world and, and live this adventure of faith. And I'm seeing more and more folks at that stage of life or contemplating what that stage of life could look like. And so early retirement or older adulthood, like there's, we need some initiation around these things. It's another thing that Richard Rohr has gotten really into. Um, some of his early work was around these rites of initiation for adults, particularly for him, he was doing work with men. Uh, he looked at the toxicity uh, of masculinity and the spiritual poverty that comes with so much of what men are told about who they're supposed to be and how they're supposed to be. And he figured out that a lot of men really needed a counter-narrative to that, needed to see themselves on a spiritual journey. And a big part of that was initiation, um, finding ways to be brought into, like, it's okay to be a gentle, caring, loving man. Um, and it's kind of incredible. My dad did it, and it was transformative for him. But what are the points of initiation in our life? So I am going to set you all to talk with each other for a bit, because the best parts of this is not me talking. It's you getting to know each other. So I have some handouts. I'm going to read the questions, and I'm going to give you all about 15 minutes together. I'm mind putting the food on that white cloth table right in the middle there? All right, so questions. Have you been baptized? Do you remember your baptism? Have you been part of a denomination with strong views on infant baptism? Have you been confirmed or professed your faith as an adult? If so, what was the preparation process like? What experiences do you have of joining a new church? Has there been a marker of a moment that you're officially part of the church? Did you feel something part of something bigger? And then four, and if you don't talk about anything else, talk about four. How would you describe your current stage on the spiritual journey? Can you remember an earlier stage? How would you describe it? Can you remember a specific turning point between the stages? So I'm going to let you all talk amongst yourselves. We'll come back. Uh, I'm going to give you a little more than 10 minutes. So we'll come back at 10 to 5 for a last kind of group conversation. So there is dinner for those of us who can stick around. And so we'll say a prayer when the kids get up here. Uh, and you can keep talking. Some of us will be contending with kids, but that's life. So I'm, I'm going to enter a few different ways into this because we're not going to sum everything up, but I'd love to hear how did you name some of the stages of life or faith that you find yourselves in right now? Did anybody hear a stage they'd not heard before? Did you reject my theory entirely? <laughs> What do you think? We talked about um, several of us have young kids. Yep. Parenting young kids is a distinct time in our spiritual life. Yeah. 
parenting young kids, also known as the sleepless uh, stage of the spiritual journey. And just answering lots of questions and yeah. asking lots of questions. Yeah, parenting young kids. It's amazing how much of your identity shifts from I'm working on my own spiritual journey to I'm trying to keep this group of people alive, <laughs> you know? But I, everybody else who's been through it laughed at that, and all the young parents were like, oh, God. <laughs> what other stages? I'm there with you, if that's not clear. What other stages? Uh, Michael. I've got a slightly different stage. Yeah? I'm not retired. Yeah, not retired. But my youngest daughter just went away to college yeah. in September. So I'm kind of in this new stage where I have more time, or at least I have more emotional. Yeah. Um, em- empty nest kind of stage, yeah. 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 Other folks? Gloria. Yep. And then uh, still uh, searching and finding a way. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's sort of intentional re-engagement of faith and spirituality that uh, that can be scary. It really can. Um, it can also be really surprising that it can be so rich. But that's that sort of re engagement with spirituality after a long time away. That's a I'm glad you found cohort there, right? It's a it's a helpful thing to know that you're not alone in that. Any other stages people want to name? It's okay too to think about the liminality piece of it that a lot of us, when we really experience the stage, are really what we're experiencing is the boundaries of the stage. When you're right in the middle of something, it just feels like life, right? But, but when you hit the edges of it, that's why I asked that question about, do you remember a time when you went through a big transition or a big shift? Because I, I think sometimes it's when we're on that liminal space, on that edge, there's a lot of growth that's possible, but it tends to be really uncomfortable. Um, it's good to keep in mind. What else did you talk about? Did you talk baptism stories? Yeah? What baptisms do you remember? I saw nods. Oh, we're being quiet about it. That's okay. That's okay. Our table was universally, I don't remember. Yeah, universally, I don't remember. Um, my mom tells me that uh, what she remembers about my baptism was that I had a really epic poop in the middle of it. Uh, so I was, I was really small. It was funny, when you get ready for ordination, uh, one of the things you have to do is submit your baptism data to the Episcopal Church. And so we went back to the church of my childhood and they had me listed as having been baptized before I was born. We had to get that one fixed before I could keep going. Um, Yeah. It's an interesting... It's 
you can feel with baptism and confirmation and marriage and the sacramental encounters that the church has figured out, um, you can feel the, the and burial too, the sort of across life sense of the spiritual life too. Uh, we keep these records. We've got, I should have brought one up. I bring it up during dinner if you want. We just have to keep the calzones off of it. But um, we have some record books that go back here to the 1870s, right? And it, it's all the records of people's marriages and burials and baptisms. And, and there's this sense that church is a sort of container for the whole of life, or it functioned that way for a really long time. It, it's amazing to me how many people will still show up to a church that maybe their grandparents were part of, and they want to get married there, or they want to have their kid baptized there. Uh, those moments tend to be, and they're liminal moments, right? Big changes in life tend to be places where people re-encounter church, and every once in a while they join uh, at one of those things. So. Every time we do one of these classes, I am going to put on the pilgrimage site, if you go to holycommunion.net uh, and then you go to education, uh, there's a, a pilgrimage page. And that's where I'm going to put, it, it, there you can see the little tiny previews of each one. But if you scroll about halfway down, you'll see a pilgrimage um, practicing across life link. And if you click on that link, I've put some additional resources if you want to um, listen more or think more or read more. Um, I'm going to take them in reverse order. Uh, the third one is a great conversation between Brian McLaren, the writer that I talked about who wrote um, Do I Stay Christian? I put his book on there, and I said especially the first part of the third section uh, if you want to look at stages. But he just had a conversation with Barbara Brown Taylor who's an Episcopal priest and just one of the best preachers there and writers there is out there. And it's on the Center for Action and Contemplation's um, podcast, Learning How to See. And they talk about the stages of faith and the stages of life. And you can listen into that. You can read Brian Taylor's book. I put one other book on there. Um, this book is by a mentor of mine, an Episcopal priest who's now retired. His name's Brian Taylor. Uh, but it's called Becoming Human, Core Teachings of Jesus. And I'm not going to go into the whole depth of it, but, but Brian's central premise, he, he wrote a big, thick book on contemplative prayer. I know we've got some contemplative prayer folks in here. And it's like, it's really well written, but it, it's a pretty thick, like, here's how you do step-by-step -step contemplative prayer. And then the next year, he's like, I wrote this book on contemplative Christianity that was really thick. And then for some reason, the next year, the bottom fell out for me. And I realized that my faith, if it didn't teach me how to be a better human, what was its good? And so he wrote a book about becoming human, and it's just a whole little set of meditations on spiritual practices. But I'm going to read you some of the names of the spiritual practices that Brian names, because I think they're great. Become simple. Plant, water, and wait. Change the world. Don't worry. Purify your heart. Drop your pride and shame. Be earthy. Associate with the wrong sort of people. How to find the way forward. Enjoy the feast. Forgive others. Don't be a slave to money. He goes on and on. Face into conflict. Death is not the enemy. Heal and be healed. Help the poor. How to pray. You have to serve somebody. Exercise your faith. Do it now. You can't do any of this. And you will be made new. 
And they're all just little short, they build on each other a bit, but they're just little short perspectives on practicing faith across life. And part, I think, of why this list works is because these tend to be the kind of practices that are markers on the transition moments of faith. When you figure out that part of your faith is about helping the poor, that tends to be at a pretty big transition moment. Uh, when you figure out how to become simple or that simplicity is part, it, it tends to be in the midst of a transition moment. It's just really well write, written and pithy and not overly reverent, and so I recommend it to Holy Communionites. And the links are all up, and you can it takes you straight to Amazon because that's where all of them put their books, but um, that's where it is. All right, the kids are on their way upstairs while we're waiting for them. I want to make room for questions, comments, tomatoes. Tell me I'm totally wrong if you want to. Anything? Y'all talk to each other. Yeah. Like you probably did this before, but since we came in late. It's all right. Can you just talk about like the weeks that are going to follow here? Yeah. So um, this week was practices across the whole of life. Next week, we're going to talk about annual practices. We're going to look at the church year. We're going to look at the seasons of the church. We're going to look at... Um, we're actually going to look at the kind of structure of a rule of life because uh, I kind of think a year is about the best structure um, for a rule of life kind of practice. So we're going to take a look at practices that get us across the year. And some of that will be sort of introduction to the Episcopal way of doing things like why is it purple in there right now? Um, my son asked me that after church. Why are you wearing purple? I said it's Lent. I'm not wearing purple. That's right, Silas. Chester's wearing purple. Yes, Silas. Sometimes it helps to be a four-year-old. But, um, but why we do that stuff. There's, speaking of Silas. Uh, and then the next week will be daily practices. And then we will finish. The last week of March, we'll finish with a um, class in the church. And it will, that's a microphone. Uh, so that people can listen online. And it'll be an instructed Eucharist. So we'll do the Eucharist slowly across the hour. And I won't preach and we won't do all the readings, but we'll have a lot of chance to ask questions about Eucharist. Sound good? Yes. All right. Hey, Julie, will you say a prayer for dinner? Yes. Thank you, everyone.